Genesis 22 is perhaps one of the most important chapters in the Pentateuch and the narrative that Moses compiled. World religions look at this chapter differently. Uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians all look at it as a seminal chapter in the development of theology of each religious system. The believer in Christ looks at it very differently, obvious, than Jews or Muslims. The story of God asking Abraham to kill his son Isaac as an offering is compelling and intriguing in many ways. F.B. Meyer continues, So long as men live in the world, they will turn to the story with unwaning interest. There is one scene in history by which it is surpassed, where the great father gave his Isaac, Jesus, to a death from which there was no deliverance. God and Abraham were friends in a common sorrow up to a certain point. Though the infinite love of God stepped into step, uh, excuse me. Though the infinite love of God stepped in a st- to stay the hand of Abraham at the critical moment, sparing his friend what he would not spare himself. And so we look at Genesis 22. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to go there. We're going to do this a little differently than a line by line exposition. Lloyd began the chapter last weekend, and I want to sort of sum up the chapter as best possible to give us a synthesis of what the story is about. The story can be looked at and through a lot of different lenses, but at the basic lens, at the basic core, the story is about faith, and faith defies logic. To believe in God at his word is unreasonable. To believe God at his word by faith defies logic. And the heart of this passage is, when you read, when you hear, when you're taught the word of God, will you obey him? Will you believe him, even though it may go against your sensibilities, and certainly while it goes against the culture in which we live? Lloyd talked about the shim last week as an illustration, and he asked you to write on that shim the thing that you clutch, that you hold, that you would never give up, that you would hate to lay metaphorically on the altar and give back to God to burn to give away to God and he asked you to keep it this week and think last week and think about it and write things on that shim and then there's an altar built between the learning center and the worship center where you can lay that shim after the service today not to sacrifice to the Lord that is accomplished but as a symbol of letting go of the thing that you clutch that you hold so tightly to that you're unwilling to give up The tension for Abraham is the tension for all of us. Will we obey God no matter the cost? Will we obey God though it seems unreasonable? Now for the believer, we need to understand something about a test. Uh, F.B. Meyer called this the test because God had confidence that Abraham would pass it. Every person in here hates pop tests, right? Except malevolent teachers, you like them. The rest of us abhor a pop test. We want to know what's going to be on the test. We want to know ahead of time what are the things we have to know. But that test doesn't really measure anything. A pop test measures everything. A pop test measures an unprepared person. And this test, in order for it to be a test, Abraham could not know it was a test. Man tends to demand of God. We have our plans, our ways, our dreams, our intentions for our family, our marriage, our children, 
our preteens, our teens, our college-age young men and women, who he or she will marry, where they will live. We, we agonize, we lament, we pray, we wring our spiritual hands, we work so hard all of life that it will go according to a certain way, which is counter the life of faith. It's not bad or evil or harmful that we do those things, but we need to have it aligned with living by faith, not by working so stinking hard to make it what we want it to be. Man is demanding God to intervene. James Crenshaw writes, In short, it answers the important question, what does it mean to fear God? Perhaps the simplest way is to describe the answer is this. For some people, true worship means to walk alone into God-forsakenness, or worse, to discover that God is one's worst enemy. No disrespect intended, you will never hear the Joel Olsteins of the world say such words. To discover the Lord is one's worst enemy. What does Crenshaw mean? We have a plan, we have an idea, we have a concept of how this Christian life should work sewn so tightly in the American fabric of do this, if then, success, and so forth. God is not constrained by an American view of success. God is not constrained by doing this and then this happens, raising your children and they will turn out fine and love you forever. Oh, it d- doesn't work that way. Life is hard and it's difficult and it's challenging. Marriages test us. Our health tests us. Things touch our lives and get our attention. And it's at that point, it's that fulcrum where all the props are gone that you and I begin to trust God. I've said it many times. I'll say it again and again and again. I don't think we trust God until the props are gone. If my marriage is good, my money is good, my health is good, my children are generally good, I like my job, it's 68 degrees and the sun is shining, I don't need God, and nor do you. But you touch my marriage, you touch my health, you touch my child, you touch someone I love, I suffer some injustice, My marriage goes through a horrific divorce. People say evil things about you. You make poor choices and live with consequences. Bad things happen to all of us. Then faith begins. Right? Do I trust him in the middle of the mess? And I think the disingenuous part of the American Christian is that we've wrapped Christianity in a Western mode of success and systems rather than a life of faith. The test in Genesis chapter 22 is spelled out in the first two verses. Will you offer to me the one thing I've given you that you could not give yourself? Your son Isaac. Remember, Abraham didn't know it was a test. If he knew it was a test, it wouldn't be a test. That's the nature of what God is doing. God is not testing man to fail him. And again, Meyer quotes, To quote Meyer, it was God's vote of confidence in Abraham. Abraham, we've walked together this long. You've made some mistakes, yes. You've sinned, yes. But now at this juncture, you're ready for this ultimate test. Because I've been with you all the way. I provided everything I said I would. Will you believe me one more time? To surrender things, ironically, that God has given. What do you have that you were not given? I'm not talking about 
the politicians who say such nonsense. I'm talking about spiritual. What do you have that you have not been given? Some of you have an intellectual mind. You, you are math-oriented, language-oriented, music and arts-oriented, medically-oriented. You're a systems thinker, whatever your gift in life might be. So you're good at that thing, and you use that thing, and you have to develop it. You're not a great musician unless you practice and work and write. You're not going to be a great scientist unless you go to school and pass courses and learn math and so forth and so on. You won't be good in language unless you read and study, but it started somewhere. You aren't that good. I'm not that good. God granted it to us. And ironically, he's asking us to give him that which he gave us. The language of chapter 22 is compared and contrasted to Genesis 12, the first three verses. I will tell you, as long as I teach the Bible, those three verses in Genesis 12 are some of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Because from that passage, God promises to bless the world through a man named Abraham, through his seed who becomes Jesus Christ. In chapter 22, the first two verses, we have parallels that you Bible study, fellowship, precept students, those who love to study the Bible, you need to go home and lay those passages beside each other again and again and again. Look at Genesis 22, first three verses, over Genesis 12, the first three verses, and compare and contrast. It's called an inclusio, what God has done. And we called Abraham, and now let's, let's guesstimate 35, 40 years later when Genesis 22 is included. This test is agonizing. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Each adjective lays on another layer of pain. Your son, your only son, the son whom you love. And bring him as an offering to me. It's juxtaposed, as Lloyd talked about the necessary ending. He sent Ishmael and Hagar away. Now, I want you to kill Isaac. And the test could not be more impossible for him to face. In verses 3 to 10, he obediently follows. Abraham's absolute submission to God is why we call him a man of great faith. Yes, he failed. Yes, he sinned. Yes, he deceived. But his life is overarchingly characterized as a man of faith. And it's culminated in this greatest trial in the Bible, according to Meyer. Now, some of you read the Bible carefully, and you catch things like this. Some of us maybe miss it. But I want you to see a phrase that occurs four times in the Abraham narrative. And it's simply the phrase, arose early in the morning. Arose early in the morning. The first time we see it is in chapter 19, verse 27, after Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed. You will remember that Abraham pleaded with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were a handful of righteous people. Well, Lot and a couple get out. Of course, Lot's wife dies in the process, and the cities are destroyed. And it says in chapter 19, 27, after the destruction, Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. The first time that phrase is used, it's this immediate response that Abraham has. God said he was going to do something, and Abraham immediately responds without delay. We find a different way it's used with the story of Avimelech, Abimelech. Abimelech had taken Abraham's wife Sarah into be, into be part of the harem. And remember, God told him, you're a dead man. And so he has to negotiate with Abraham to pray for him so that God doesn't kill him. And we read in chapter 20, verse 8, 
Abimelech, Abimelech arose early in the morning. What's the narrator telling us? No delay. God introduces something, there's no delay. There's a response. Now, if your life's hanging in the balance, you're probably motivated to move pretty quickly. Chapter 21, God has told Abraham to move Ishmael and Hagar out of the equation. Chapter 21, 14, so Abraham arose early in the morning. No delay. Remember, he pled with God, oh, that Ishmael might walk before you. No, one will come from your seed. And God asks him, listen to your wife, send them away. No delay, chapter 21 and 14. Abraham arose early in the morning. And now, the last time we read it is in our text before us, chapter 22, verse 3. God tells Abraham to offer his son, his only son, whom he loves, as a sacrifice to him on a hill in Moriah. Verse 3, so Abraham arose early in the morning. No delay. Question for you and me. When we know something true of God's word, how quickly do we obey? Do you arise early in the morning to obey the Lord at his word? I've shared the quote many, many times with you, Elizabeth Elliot. Someone was asking one of those questions slash complaints. You know how people do when they ask. They're not asking a question. They're sort of making a commentary, and then they sort of tag a question on it. And she went on and on and on and asked Elizabeth. And she used the word, I struggle with this. And Elizabeth listened for a minute, and she said, You know, I've always defined struggle as delayed obedience. Are we willing to rise early in the morning and do God's word? In this culture, this is challenged unlike any time in my short life. And you're going to have to make decisions. Will you obey him by faith and be the minority? Will you get up early in the morning and trust Christ at his word no matter what the world tells us? He rose early, he saddled his donkey, he took two servants, he split the wood, and notably, he carries the fire and the knife. It struck me, studying this passage, he puts the wood on Isaac, which is a heavy metaphor, but he carries the instruments of death. He doesn't give those to his servants, nor does he give them to his son. Abraham, we might say, ponies up, says, okay, God's asked me to do this. I'm taking the knife. I'm taking the fire. Three days journey. It's attractive to overread too much into that three days journey, but it is an important thing to point out. Remember the parallels between uh, Abraham and Isaac and Abraham and Sarah and Israel and Egypt. When Israel will go into captivity, they will look back on the time period when Abraham was in Egypt when Abraham sojourned, when he and Sarah were in danger, when God called them out, when he saves him and Sarah while they're in captivity. And if you know your Bible a little bit, you may well remember the story of when God calls Moses to deliver Israel out of the hands of Egyptian slavery. He says, you're to go a three days journey into the wilderness that you might, what? Worship me. We've got to take all our people and all our livestock Three days journey out of Egypt to go worship. And we don't want to overread, but I find it very compelling that the journey from where they were to Moriah was going to be three days to worship 
God by sacrificing Isaac. Verse 7 of chapter 22, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? As best as I can study the passage, this is the first time the words of Isaac are recorded in Scripture, and he asks his father a question. Where is the offering? The most marvelous answer in the Bible, perhaps. Verse 22, verse, chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself. Don't miss it. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Little is said, but much is meant. God provided everything in Abraham's life to this point. Did he do it the way Abraham thought? No. Did he do it on Abraham's schedule? No. Did Abraham die with 25 sons and 46 grandchildren? No. But does Abraham die with a legitimate son who will be the father of nations? Yes. Did God protect him through all his sojourns? Yes. Did God bless the world through him? Yes. Everything God said he fulfilled in Abraham's life up until this point. Now, as a sidebar, but I think it's important, don't miss, God provides a sacrifice for himself. Worship is about God, not about the worshiper. Now, don't, over, over, don't take that too far. But understand, when we come to church, and many of us could tell stories about we used to go to this church or that church, we left, we ended up at fellowship, maybe you're on your way out, I don't know. But one of the things you hear often is, you know, I don't get anything out of the church. I, I, go to, I don't get anything out of that service. You'll hear students' ministries. I don't get anything out of student ministries. Well, that's a consumer American comment, not a worshipful community comment. Because we come to worship God. We don't come to get. If you choose to lay that shim, you are giving it. You're not keeping it. For it to be a test, he couldn't know it was a test. For it to be worship, it's about God, not about man. Yes, we're worshiping. But it's about God, not about self. And our American mindset, mine included, is so narcissistic materialistic, consumeristic, all about stinking me. God's not mad at us because of it, but his love would compel us out of it. We're worshiping God, not our way of life. We're worshiping God, not that we have an easy life. We're worshiping God, not for a better life. We're worshiping God because he has asked us and bought us with a price. Abraham's faithful obedience is because he trusts him in a marvelous fashion. Verse, 10, verse 9 and 10, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Many have observed there is no sign of a struggle. We don't know precisely, but the best we can conclude that Isaac would be somewhere between his mid-20s, some would argue as early in his mid-30s. He wasn't a boy. He was a young man. 
He's carrying wood up a mountain. The two of them walk along, leaving the donkeys and the servants behind. And they go to offer sacrifice. The word bound is the only time it occurs in our Bibles right there. It's the Hebrew word aked, aked, roughly transliterated A-Q-E-D, aked. The idea of binding something for a sacrifice, uniquely here in the story of Isaac, takes a little understanding. Listen to Soren Kierkegaard. How many of you had to read Kierkegaard in college or grad school? How many? Well, real high so I can see. Yeah. You either love Kierkegaard or you hate him. There's no gray with Kierkegaard. Not to bore you with too much of it, but here's a portion. There was many a father who's lost a child. But then it was God. It was unalterable, the unsearchable will of the Almighty. It was his hand that took the child. Not so with Abraham. For him was reserved a harder trial. Isaac's fate was laid alongside the knife that Abraham had in his hand. And there he stood, the old man with his only hope. But he did not doubt. He did not look anxiously to the right or to the left. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. He knew that God, the God Almighty, who was trying him, and he knew that it was the hardest sacrifice that he would ever be required to do. But he also knew that no sacrifice was hard when God required it. And the old man drew the knife. To think about what's happening in this text, Wayland Smith is one of our graphic artists who designed this set. And I hope you've watched it morph over the weeks of the set. It's very intentional. I, I don't understand how these men and women come up with this stuff and what their minds are, but I marvel at what they accomplish. And Wayland did a beautiful job with this set. And we gave him images of what Moriah would look like. Now, to call it Mount Moriah is a bit of a miscue because it's like there's not one rocky mountain. They're the Rockies. And they've made a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. The text says, to Moriah, to a mountain I will show you. And then we gloss it later in the storyline as Mount Moriah. And this elevation is a close facsimile of what it would look like prior to the temple complex. And that's where that table of rocks was built, where he bound his son to kill him. When we see the provision that God has made in the story, we know the story too well, but we've got to envision him walking up there just with wood, fire, a knife, binding his son on that table, putting a knife to his throat before God intervenes. God takes no delight in human sacrifice. That wasn't the point of the story. God's provision is teaching us something. And in verse 14, when Abraham calls it, the Lord will provide, that name will stick forever. It's the name Jehovah Jireh, and you're probably in your margin of your Bible. Unfortunately, there's no J sound in Hebrew. It's not Jehovah. It's the word Yahweh. We don't know how to pronounce Yahweh. There's no vowel pointing on it. It's Y-H-W-H, roughly transliterated into English. Yahweh, if you want to be technical. But the King's English used the J. There's no Jehoshaphat. It's Jehoshaphat. There's no, there's no Joshua. It's, ha- it's Hoshua, Hoshua. It's a soft sound. No J in Hebrew. So the phrase really isn't Jehovah Jireh. It's Yahweh Ra'ah. Yahweh Ra'ah. And the word Ra'ah means that he provides and he sees. It's a double meaning word. When 
Abraham sees the ram caught in the thickets by its horn. That's the provision. So it's a word play. The Lord will provide is what the place is called, the name of the place. He saw the provision. It wasn't going to be the lamb Isaac. It was a ram caught in a thicket. So the Lord sees, the Lord provides is the word play. Now, big jump in time. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. David, the king, is not going to build a house for God. He's going to build his own home. God let him build a nice mansion for himself. But he assembles all the building materials for his son Solomon, who will build the temple complex. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now, this story is long, and it's, it's complex, and it's intricate. But what you must understand is the place that Abraham took Isaac, his son, under God's command to put a knife to his neck is the place that becomes the temple complex. So if we could take a shoebox, take the top off, and rough out the side so it fits... We set it on top of Mount Moriah. And if you look at a geo map today or on your device right now and you look at the Dome of the Rock in Israel, you'll see that gaudy Dome of the Rock and you'll see the Al-Aqs Mosque on the end. And that table actually was built by Herod the Great. But under that table is the very spot of Mount Moriah. And we're talking at tops 50 yards in any direction where this happened. That's how precise. And the events that happen on this are remarkable through history. We get just one reference of it in Second Chronicles 3 on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. That land is purchased. It's bought. Abraham will buy the cave of Machpelah. We'll see in the near future. These are titles and deeds of antiquity that say this is the Jews' land that God gave them. And that's where the sacrifice would have taken place. God will provide the sacrifice for himself. And how many hundreds of thousands of animals will be sacrificed once that temple complex has been built? Well, the Lord will provide. He sees the need of the, whole, of the unholy. He sees the need of the sinner, and he makes provision. True worship is presenting our best to God and trusting him with the outcome. It's remembering that what we have, he gave anyway. It's not ours to keep. We didn't own it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't get it by the sweat of our brow. He allowed us to acquire it. He allowed us to have children. He allowed us to make a good living. He allowed us to have a job. He allows you to have a measure of health. He allows you fill in the blank. And so the worshiper is not to clutch and build and acquiesce endlessly. The worshiper is to say, I get up early in the morning to live by faith and to obey you at your word. Perhaps one of the struggles of worship is it's become about us and how I feel and what I like and what I don't like versus what am I giving? Who am I serving? How am I living? The true worshiper is assured. This is the second time, verse 11, the angel of the Lord speaks to him from heaven. I, I preach things to myself all the time, and one of the things I tell myself, and I've, you've heard me say it 
again and again is don't let your experience shape your theology. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let your experiences tell you otherwise about God. There's rarely a day goes by I don't have to tell myself, Michael, just do the next thing. Because the problems are legion. The challenges are endless. The to-do list will never end. They'll, they'll tack to-do list on my coffin. They will never be done. Take a deep breath. Your life is not about getting the next thing accomplished, but it is about doing the next thing. That's all anybody can do. Your marriage is struggling. You're at each other's throat. Your husband's gone crazy. The wife's gone crazy. You both have gone crazy. Your kids have gone crazy. You got a health issue with a child. Your whole... It, it's, I've seen it countless times. You in the medical profession, you live there. Your, people's worlds stop when a child's in the hospital. Practice, soccer, schedules, meals. It stops because the child's life is in danger or in jeopardy or in question. Nothing else matters. That's a really good picture of the spiritual life. You just do the next thing. You can't wait for the lab. You can't wait for the doctor. You can't wait for the nurse. You can't wait for the MRI to come back. You can't wait for one more test. You're just, you're just doing, I tell people all the time, just do the next thing. Because I tell myself that a hundred times a day. The faithful man or woman just does the next thing. Plans are great. Plans are important. Plans are beautiful. They're wonderful things. We all need some kind of plan in life. But don't hold your plan so tenaciously. Don't write it in permanent ink. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. And for the believer, what does God require of you? That's the question of faith. Notice the causal relationship of verse 16. Because you have done this thing. What did he do? He believed God. Was it the action, his works, his good works that got him there? No. It's that he believed God when he put that knife on Isaac's throat. Because you have done this thing, I'm going to provide for you. I approve of what you've done because you believed me. I approve of the quality of your faith, but I'm going to also provide for you. The last part of the chapter is almost the, oh, by the way, for most of us, as we read verses 20 to 24, it's a short, brief section that has two pieces of information, transition and assurance transition that Abraham was going to have innumerable children. He's going to die with one son, essentially. But the name Rebekah is introduced. And we have the transition that the story is going forward. That by faith, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham and to Sarah, and through the promised seed, Isaac, his son. The test for Abraham was, do you fear God more than man? Do you fear God more than yourself? Do you fear God more than your experience? True worship is, do I fear God more than the world? And fear needs to be revisited just a little bit. Because we're not, fear is talking about respect. And I've said this many times. Teach your children, we as a people, fellowship Bible church people, ought to be the most respectful people in this community of your employer, of a man or woman in uniform, of a person in the service, of a policeman, a fireman, EMT, a physician, anyone in authority over you. You should be the most respectful people on the planet. 
But that's not respecting God. And that's why I think when we say fear is respecting God, it's a misnomer. I think we need to put, inject a little bit of holy fear into it. Not to be terrified or afraid, but a holy fear. Remember uh, the lyricist a few years back, forgive me, present company included and accepted, uh, some of the language about Abba, Father, and Daddy, and some of this palaver? Remember this? And sort of this, you know, he's my buddy kind of guy. I mean, the hipster Jesus would sit in, you know, some, it wouldn't be Starbucks, it'd be a hot cuisine coffee shop, and you'd be drinking a $7 thing in a cup that big, in the most uncomfortable chair ever built by man, and you'd be hanging out with Jesus as a hipster. No, you wouldn't. You'd be on your face like a dead man. He's not your buddy. He's not your friend. He's not your pal. He's not the guy you're going to hang with and do life with. He's God. He's holy. He's awesome. He's perfect. He's just. And when you see him, you will, as John did in Patmos in the Revelation, you will fall on your face like a dead man. Because you will understand the depth of your sin and the unbelievable immeasureness of his holiness, and you will worship him in spirit and truth and fear. And he'll pick you up. And he'll look you in the face. And you'll fall down. That's why I believe eternity has to be eternity. Because all Jesus will be doing is picking up all of us as we continue to fall down in front of him. Blown away by his holiness and presence and awesomeness. And that he loves the likes of us. How can he love that person that you look in the mirror? If you think you have an answer for that, my friend, think again. We will commemorate the Lord's table as a family, ask our ushers and our worship team to come back out. No more fitting time to do this ordinance than as we end chapter 22 of what Christ has done in our place on our behalf instead of us. As you leave today, there'll be an altar that was beautifully constructed between the Learning Center and the Worship Center. And you can take that shim, what you've clutched, what you've held, symbolically. There's no sacrifice we give. The sacrifice we give him now is a sacrifice of praise. But this is a symbol. It's a, it's a picture. It's an idea of, will you give back to him that which he gave to you that you're clutching? We climb the ladder of life only to find that when we get to the top, we're on the wrong mountain, right? And the law requires the firstborn, the first fruit, and Christ accomplishes both. To fear him is to worship him and obey him and believe him over the world's messages. The lie of the world that too many Christians have believed, we nuance the Bible, we nuance our sin, we nuance sexuality, we nuance our identity, we nuance, name it. Abraham believed God at his word and obeyed him, period. The passage that we often turn to in 1 Corinthians that describes what we're about to do, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I received something from the Lord, and I'm delivering it to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks. Thanks. 
He broke the bread and gave thanks. And I paused there. The word Eucharistes means to give thanks. It's not the element, the host, the crumb. The word Eucharistes is the word, and he gave thanks. He broke the bread on the heels of his betrayal. Think about one of his closest friends, Judas, betraying him. And he gives thanks to the Lord as he breaks the unleavened bread. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have two elements. We have the broken body by the bread and the cup, emblematic of the blood, which is the new covenant. The new covenant was prophesied again and again that God would come and put his word not on our heads, on phylacteries and wrists, but on our hearts. Not just in a book, but the spirit indwelling us, the word of God alive. And so we commemorate the broken body, the shed blood. Apart from blood, there is no remission of sin. Apart from that goat, that lamb, that foreshadowing, the knife on Isaac, and then the ram, there's no forgiveness of sin. But the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So the Lamb of God, as John called him, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called to his supper. So as you look at that piece of bread, let me pray with you. Father, thank you that you loved me when I was quite unlovely, quite unlovable. Thank you, broken in my place, on my behalf, instead of me. The greatest sacrifice ever given. The perfect Isaac. Your son, your only son, your only begotten son, whom you love. The unique God-man, born to die, that we might live. May we not toy around or fool around in the things that you've given us. We remember and we take and eat. The cup commemorating the blood. And I would like for us to say together, I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Pay very close attention to the lyrics of the next two songs we will sing.